invite you to turn with me this morning in your Bible to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, Jesus has been arrested and he has um, been brought before the, uh, or it's very early morning and he's been brought to the um, place where the high priests, their uh, compound would be near the temple. Uh, he's already had a mock trial early in the morning with um, Annas and then Caiaphas, and you can read about those in the other Gospels. Uh, but where we pick up this morning, Jesus is uh, being held, mocked, beaten, and then brought to trial, um, the official trial early in the morning. And so we'll pick it up, Luke chapter 22. And begin reading at verse 63. We're actually going to be spending most of our time looking at verse 63 through 65. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And then they will bring him to Pilate. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. God in heaven, help us to see Jesus this morning in his word, to see his beauty, his love, his suffering for us, the salvation that we can have in him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're going to look at Jesus being mocked. Jesus um, is mocked repeatedly through his suffering, and uh, it might seem to us seem to us to be a, a rather insignificant part of his suffering, uh, but it's it's mentioned repeatedly as we're going to see in the uh, narrative of his of his uh, suffering and crucifixion. And if we think about it, uh, to, to be mocked. Is um, it's one of the it's one of the more painful experiences of uh, of a person's life. If you uh, boys and girls, if you get mocked for something, maybe at school or by other uh, children, that hurts. But the mockery that really we fear isn't just if people say uh, unkind things about us. The mockery we feel is the mockery of being exposed and shamed as a fraud. Uh, whatever little children might fear on the playground, big boys and girls fear uh, at work or fear in their circle of friends, uh, maybe even fear in the church. What if people really knew who I was? What if they really knew uh, the things that I, I've said and done? What if I was exposed in, um, in, the, in all the ugly truth of my sin? What if that were broadcast this morning? Uh, we, we fear that because we know there are things there that are shameful. Uh, there are things that are worth mocking about our lives. Well, this morning we're going to see Jesus, the one who has uh, nothing to be ashamed of, now being made shame for us. Uh, bearing the mockery and the ridicule that we deserve as our sin is placed on him. 
Uh, this, uh, in this text, we find Jesus now walking forward in this path of humiliation that God the Father has asked him to walk. Jesus in the garden submitted himself, not my will, but your will be done. Now the Father is, uh, is leading him uh, through this fire, through this uh, ordeal of judgment as Christ is mocked. Um, here we find not only Jesus doing a great work, but Israel doing a terrible work. We're going we're gonna to see that, that as Jesus begins this glorious work of atonement in his beautiful obedience to the Father, Israel now seals her fate in this profound disobedience. Jesus has been manifesting the truth about who he was, and now they're going to finally officially say, we don't want anything to do with it. Let his blood be on us and our children. They are, uh, in, in these hours now, officially rejecting, despising their Messiah. The first thing I want us to see this morning is just the suffering of our Savior. Verses 63 and 64. If you can just see it in your mind's eye, can't you? The, what, what's going on? They, uh, these cowards, right? They didn't dare touch Jesus uh, when he was in the daylight because they were afraid of the crowds. But now they have him secreted away in some inner room in the compound of the high priest. And these men now have him, uh, hand, they, they got him his hands are bound. Uh, he's blindfolded. And now they're, now they're uh, able to find their courage in, in, their, in their cowardice and, and in their cruelty. Now uh, they begin to spit in his face and to beat him with their fists. And then they will uh, mockingly laugh and say, uh, prophesy, who was, it, who was it that hit you that time? And the text shows us that this happened over and over. This is sport for them. This is a game. From Matthew's account, we, uh, we know it's, it wasn't just the temple guards, uh, but it was uh, members of the Sanhedrin themselves. These would be older men, Jewish leaders, uh, calloused in their wicked pride and their secret vices. Uh, now they uh, spew their venom on the Son of God, and, and they, they do it so casually, so flippantly, as they make sport with Jesus. As I said, the mocking of Christ might uh, not seem to be a big part of the suffering of Christ because uh, they're just words. Uh, but, but actually, the, the mocking of Jesus is a significant theme in, his, in the account of his suffering. It shows up over and over again. Uh, we have our verse here, chapter 22, 63. We're going to find when we get to chapter 23, verse 11, then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. We know from the other gospel accounts that Pilate and uh, Pilate's soldiers specifically mocked him. Uh, when Jesus was on the cross, Luke 23, 35, uh, the people stood by watching the rulers scoffing at him, saying he saved others, let him save himself if he's Christ, the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and uh, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. He's mocked repeatedly, and he's mocked by everyone. Everyone's represented in a sense, the Jewish leaders, the Gentile leaders, and then the common people and the soldiers, and, and we're told even the robber that was crucified, uh, that were crucified in each side of him, they also reviled him, ridiculed him. 
See, there's no one who does good, not even one, right? Jesus alone is the good one here, but Jew and Gentile alike, all mankind are united in their hatred and rejection of Christ. One of the things that um, I, I had not really noticed before, uh, but was pointed out by the commentators, and uh, I listened to a fantastic sermon by Eric Alexander on this, but, but he pointed out how the mocking of Jesus relates to the, the offices of Christ. You maybe have heard of uh, the offices of Christ, that Christ came as a prophet, the one who speaks the truth of God's word and is the, uh, the word of God, the Logos. And Jesus came as king, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and, and claims to be the Messiah, which is, a, which is a kingly office. And then also Jesus as a priest, uh, the, the Messiah was a, a combination of all these things. But as a priest, he comes to reconcile sinners to God, to, to make intercession for sinners before God, to save us. And Jesus is mocked specifically in all these three offices. In our text this morning, he's mocked as a prophet. We've heard you're a prophet. People have said you maybe are the prophet. So, bam, prophesy. Who was that? Can you identify where the spit came from? Whose hand was it that just smashed into your jaw? Prophesy, oh great prophet. Show your magic tricks. See, it's all, it's all a game. Mocking Jesus as the prophet. Herod and his soldiers and Pilate and his soldiers mocked him as the king. We read in Mark 15 that they, the soldiers got a purple cloak out and they, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and, and, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And, and they struck him with a reed and spit on him and knelt down in homage to him. Some king you are. Exercise your power. Exercise your authority. Show us something, King of the Jews. And then they stripped him of the purple cloak and led him out to crucify him. And he was mocked as a priest, mocked as one who makes intercession, who's able to save. If you're the Christ, if you're the, the chosen one of God, you're the Messiah, all right, well, let's see something. Come down from the cross. You can't even save yourself. What a failure. What a cosmic joke. And so the whole, the whole scene, the whole narrative of the, of the suffering and humiliation of Christ is a, is a narrative of, of mockery, where, where, as we said, men from, from every corner, uh, representing both Jews and Gentiles, rulers and, and, uh, and, and soldiers, and the common man, and, and robbers on each of his side, are ridiculing and mocking and jeering at Jesus. I want you to think about the suffering that's involved in that. This is the Jesus who wept over Jerusalem, saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chick under her wings, but you would not. And he's weeping. And now this, um, these people of God, this, uh, the Jewish nation, are officially mocking, despising, and, and scorning the one that God sent to them. But God so loves the world, not just Jews. And Jesus here is being mocked by the world. 
The world is rejecting him. The world is scorning him. And, and it's not that it hurts his feelings. It's, it's that he's a savior of love. He, he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that they should turn and be saved. And, and, um, and, and now as he is, is bearing our sin, he's subject to this ridicule and the venom of, of the spirit of sin pours out on him for the, the essence of sin is a hatred of God. It's a hatred uh, of God's way of salvation. If we can't save ourselves, then we would rather truly be damned. And so Christ suffers the mocking of sinners. I want you to also notice the tragedy of Israel here. You see, what's going on is that uh, these men that are mocking Jesus in our verses, are, they're Jewish men. And they're Jewish rulers and the servants of Jewish rulers, and, and they're manifesting, you see, the central crime of Israel throughout the ages. This has been the sin of Israel, that they reject God's word. This is the great spiritual failure of God's people, that God would speak and they would reject it. They, God would give them messengers and prophets, and they would refuse to submit to that word of God. So when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. That their modus operandi. That's what they're known for. They're God's people. God sends a prophet to speak his truth, to call them to covenant faith and obedience, and they kill the messenger. Why? Because sin is rebellion. And we don't want to... Be submit to the truth of God. And sin believes a lie. And so in, in, in our deception, we think that the word of God is foolish and it's not significant. It's not worth paying attention to. It's certainly not worth getting out of bed for. It's not worth making any changes in your life for. It's not worth giving up your, your right to yourself for. And so Israel here, in their bondage and blindness, they're breaking covenant and refusing their own salvation. You see, this was, um, <clears throat> this was their spiritual privilege that they're rejecting. The, Paul grieves in Romans chapter uh, 9 or 11. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking maybe 11, but theirs, was the, theirs were the prophets. They had Moses. They had the prophets. They had all the promises, all the revelation. Other nations didn't get that. Other nations were left in their darkness, left in their ignorance. But not Israel. Israel had a light. Israel had a lamp under their feet, a light for their path. Israel had truth, God himself revealing himself. Not because they were any better, they were not. They were stiff-necked and hard-hearted, but God loved them, and in loving them, he spoke his truth to them. He gave them revelation so that they might be saved. <clears throat> but they rejected him even when he sent his own son. And when God right, says from heaven, this is my son whom I dearly love, listen to him. And they said, we will not listen to him. We will not. And so they are rejecting their own spiritual privilege and they're rejecting their the light that's been given to them. And they, 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 they scoff at it. It's not just that they say, no, we're, we're not... We're not going there. We're, we're, they, they, they mock it. They jeer. They, they, they treat it as completely unworthy of their respect and their attention. 
And you see, friends, in so doing, they are condemning themselves. The joke, of course, is on them. The cosmic, awful joke is on them. Can you imagine some man made of dust walks up to Jesus, the very Son of God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And this man, this puny man whose life, his existence is held uh, together by the will of this Jesus, this man walks up and smashes Jesus in the face and laughs and says, prophesy, who hit you? And Jesus knows exactly who hit him. He knows his name. He knows his face. He knows his DNA code. He knows the day he was born. He knows the day that he's going to die. He knows every secret thought, every secret sin, everything about this man. Jesus knows perfectly because he's the Son of God. They had him blindfolded. They thought that they were safe because there was some cloth in front of Jesus' eyes. Who's the fool? See, friends, there are no secret sins with Jesus. Psalm 90, verse 8, you've said our iniquities before you are secret sins in the light of your presence. We can't hide from Christ. And these men, in their utter folly, condemn themselves. They, they, they truly are damning themselves. But here we see the glory of Jesus. Because Jesus shines here as the true Israel. Jesus is God's son. And it's precisely where Israel falls that Jesus stands. Israel ridiculed the word of God. They've been doing it throughout their history. They treat it as a small thing. Um, Maybe something that they're willing to give some token acknowledgement of. Maybe even something they're willing to pride themselves in. We have the law. But not something they're willing to submit to. Not something that they're willing to lose their life for in the sense of of bowing before this king. They're not going to go that far. And so it's right where Israel falls that Jesus stands. You see, for Jesus, if you just read, read, uh, the, read the Gospel of John and maybe chapter 6 specifically and, and listen to how Jesus talks about the Word and his, his God, His Father. And I only say what He tells me to say and I only do what He tells me to do. No one in the history of the world ever honored and respected the, the Word of God like Jesus. He gave it all the respect and the obedience and the faith and the honor that it so rightly deserves. It's what he preached. It defined how he lived. It portrayed how he would die. Jesus, how often doesn't he say, the scriptures must be fulfilled. This happens and is happening so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus came to uphold his own word, the scriptures. And so he's the beautiful, true Israel. And the obedient son, Israel is the disobedient son. Jesus is the obedient son. Why does Jesus accept the mockery of these wicked fools? When a thought would make them collapse and die. Why accept the spit when he knows everything about the man who's spitting? 
Why just take the fist in the face and the jeering from these wicked men? And, and the answer is because this is why he came. So Jesus, as he, as he begins this, this road, says, Father, now is the hour. And, and what shall I say? Save me from this hour? No, but for this reason I came. Father, glorify your name. You see, Jesus had just prayed, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus knows his Bible, and he knows his theology, and he knows that God, has, the Father, has ordained this. He knows that Isaiah 53 was written for this moment, that it was the Father's will to crush him, the suffering servant, and cause him to suffer. He knows what's happening. The Father is laying our iniquities on Jesus. Jesus knows he's being numbered with the transgressors. That the Father's placing our sin on the Son and wounding now the Son in our place. And that Jesus now stands in the place of mocking and derision because that's where we belong. That's where we rightfully would be. And so when, the, when these wicked men would, would smash him into the face and, and, and taunt him, who hit you? Jesus knows in his soul the answer, it is my Father. my father who's hitting me. They're ordained by his hand. The spit is his will. The jeers are his good pleasure. And not my will, but his will be done. Jesus knows what's happening. But the blindness of these men is magnified when they finally have their fake, their trial. Verse 66, when the day came, they'd already, they've already have, have had two trials, the pre-trials in a sense, but uh, the Talmud says you can't have an official trial until daylight, and so now when daylight comes, they gather together now to officially find him guilty. If you're the Christ, tell us. And Jesus said, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. He's had that before. Uh, he, he's asked them questions before. Tell me, uh, why does David say uh, of his Lord... How can how could David both be the son or, or David's son both be uh, his son and his Lord and they have they have no idea and and, and tell me uh, uh, John's baptism was that was that from God or was that from men and they're not going to go there because if they say it's from men they're going to get stoned if they're going to say from God then Jesus will say then why didn't you believe so they've already proven Jesus' point he says if I ask you you're not going to answer they're not asking because they want knowledge they're asking because they simply want to condemn him. But notice what Jesus says, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. <clears throat> there is a courtroom. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is spoken of there in prophecy, the ancient, uh, who goes to the Ancient of Days, and the kingdom and dominion and power is given to him, and he judges the nations. And they know exactly what he's talking about. And so they said, are you the son of God then? Because the son of man they know is the son of God. And Jesus said, you say that I am. From your mouth to God's ear, I am, I am the son of God. Gelden Heiss writes this, he declared unambiguously that he was the divine Messiah, nothing less than the son of God. And this forms the very cornerstone of Christianity by which it stands or falls. Only those who believe unconditionally that he is really and truly the beloved son of God have the right to be called Christians. The Christian faith stands or falls right here on this claim of Christ, is he the son of God? 
But all the world stands, you see, uh, accountable at this moment. If Jesus is the Son of God, he's not the Christian's God. The Son of Man is not the God of those who believe a certain way. The Son of Man is the God of the nations, the whole world. And this is what we profess about Jesus, that he was, uh, on the third day, he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father, from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead, all of them. So Jesus manifests his glory. He's the judge, and whatever is happening in this courtroom is a mockery of what's going to happen on that final day when Jesus Christ takes his seat and judges the nations. How do we apply this, this text, this, this awful story? I think we need to realize, understand that Jesus is mocked still, daily. The world mocks our Jesus. They mock all of it. Uh, they mock the idea that there's a, a, a God in heaven who... Um, would judge them, would send them to hell. No, nobody really believes in hell. And, and, and even those who say they do say that that's where they would rather go because that's where their friends are. It's all, it's all a game. It's a, it's a joke. Uh, the, the idea of the Bible being the, the authoritative word of God and that you are required to believe it and obey it, it's an absolute joke. If, if, you, would, if you would just go to the, uh, to the local park or the mall and, and tell someone, uh, do you realize that, that one day you're going to answer for every word that's written here and, and the Jesus that's in this Bible, is gonna, you're going to meet him? And if you don't submit to him... You will be condemned forever. And, and there's, the only way to be saved from your sin is by is acknowledging him as, as Jesus and Lord and confessing your sin and trusting in his salvation. And you just watch their face. They're going to be looking at you like you have lost your mind. Get out of my face. Who are you? What right do you have to try to push your truth on me? It's all a joke. The idea that they need to be forgiven and that they, they need an advocate if, if they're ever going to enter into heaven. People don't believe any of that and they, and, and they mock the idea. But it's not just the world that mocks. Many who claim to be Christians mock this Jesus. A few years ago, a man, Bart Campolo, a youth ministry leader, published an article where he denounces the idea that uh, God is, has anger or wrath against sin and that the only way to be rescued from the judgment that you deserve is uh, by confessing faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He just, he just he mocks it. This is what, listen to what he said. He says, if those things are true, then God might as well send me to hell. I'm simply not interested in any God, but a completely good, entirely loving, and perfectly forgiving one. Such a God may not exist, but I will die seeking such a God, and I will pledge my allegiance to no other possibility, because frankly, anything less is not worthy of my worship. In other words, the only God that Bart Campolo is willing to worship is the God that he's created in his own mind, in his own image, and for his own pleasure. And in his self-righteous pride, Bart, the youth pastor, happily spits in the face of Jesus, the only begotten Son of God. If these things are true, then God may as well send me to hell. 
By your word you will be acquitted and by your word you will be condemned. I hope Bart comes to repentant faith or he's going to spend eternity hearing those words. But here's where it gets sticky because this text speaks to us. You see, friends, we are the recipients of this. Most of us born and raised in the church. We have spiritual privileges that uh, the Israelites even never knew. God has spoken to you and he's, he's spoken to me in his word. What have we done with it? Skilder, in his commentary, <clears throat> says here, the one thing needful for us in view of this scene is to find the surety for our souls. What good does it do us to condemn the Sanhedrin? Uh, to exhaust our imagination in an effort to find words to uh, fit to curse the folly of this high council. Can scathing attacks save us? Would we not be the more guilty if we should think ourselves superior to those mockers? No. Their work is ours. Their work is ours. You see, to, to mock is to simply refuse to give the word of God the significance and the seriousness that it deserves. Eric Alexander says this is what it means to mock Jesus, to simply fail to take him seriously, to go on in our life as though God's word wasn't true or as though it didn't really matter, as though it doesn't really require a wholehearted response of faith and obedience. When we ignore it, then we disdain it. Whenever we turn our back on all that God has revealed to us in Holy Scripture and fail to believe and obey it, we are mocking the greatest of our privileges. <clears throat> the, the challenge or the, the conviction of this text for me this week is, is just asking myself the question, how seriously really do I take the Bible? Do I take it seriously enough to read it? Or do I have a whole list of other things going on in my life and going on in my day and I just really don't have time to give it that sort of respect, to give it that place of honor in my life? Do I take it seriously enough to, uh, on my knees before, before the Lord, um, beg to be given the, 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 the spirit of illumination so that I see and I believe the things I'm writing here. You see, this is not a question of do you believe the Bible's true? It's not a question of do you believe it's inerrant? Do you believe it's sufficient? Uh, your theology of the Bible could be impeccable. And you can disdain it by simply not making this a cornerstone of your life. And this, this, you know, this might sound like uh, just do your devotions more. It's not that. It's, it's is Jesus serious enough to us that we want to know him, that, that we, we sense that the one thing that matters more than everything else in life is that I know Jesus Christ, that I know him personally, that I know him truly. I have an actual relationship with him by faith and obedience, and, and I'm giving Jesus then as my Lord and my Savior the weight that Jesus deserves. And everything that takes away from that, you see, is, is, is me rejecting my spiritual privilege. Everything I give myself to that's less than or in place of, let me say, it that way in place of Christ it's, it's rejecting my privilege it's, 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 it's just saying Lord it's not significant it's not that important to me knowing you no matter what I sing no matter what I might profess knowing you actually doesn't really matter to me 
When I've been, friends, convicted of my sins, this is the sin beneath all the sins. Because beneath all the foolishness and all the pride and all the self, what I find over and over again is that I simply haven't taken Jesus seriously. So that I love him. And so that I am eager to obey him and glad to serve him, even if it hurts and even, even if it costs. We can be, you see, the Sanhedrin, we can be the people who mock Jesus. And we just go, kind of go along with the world and we listen to the music and we, 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 we don't even hear when they take the name of Christ in vain. And we come to church and then we go and we live our life by our authority, under our rule, on our strength, for our benefit, our pleasure, our comfort, and we're mocking Jesus. And I don't know your heart. I, know, I do know mine and I know this is my sin. I would just ask you to consider your heart and consider if this could be your sin. And then let me wrap with this. It's, you see, it's, it's when we, ashamed, hear our mocking voice call out among the scoffers, it's then that we see the beauty of Jesus in, in a whole new way. Uh, Jesus was mocked because he was bearing my sin. Uh, he was ridiculed and scorned and shamed because that's exactly what I deserve. And he was standing there in my place. And he was willing to do it, you see, because he loved me. And he loved you. And he loved his father. And this was the only way that we could be saved. There was no other way. And his beautiful obedience, as he stands there and submits to the will of the father and, and takes the, the shame and the ridicule that you deserve and I deserve, that obedience becomes a robe of righteousness for anyone who confesses their sin and calls upon his name. Isn't it beautiful to think of Jesus setting aside all the glory and the honor that was rightfully his to bear all the shame that's rightfully yours? To, these, to see the Son of God mocked so you could be exalted. To see Jesus scorned so you can be honored in the presence of God. That glory and honor could belong to you. Isn't, that's just so beautiful. Guilty, vile, helpless, we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement. Full atonement for you and for me. What a Savior. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we come as the mockers. We've been more interested in money and food and sex and material pleasures and our comfort and our peace and our reputation. All those things, Lord, have weighed more heavily on our mind and heart than your word, your person, your work, your beauty, your glory. And so we confess our sin. Forgive us for taking you lightly. But Jesus, thank you that you, knowing our sin, 
gladly bore our shame. And that because, Jesus, you suffered, we can be forgiven and pardoned and cleansed. Because you bore a crown of thorns, we can receive a crown of righteousness. You were stripped naked so we could receive a robe of righteousness. You were ridiculed and mocked so we could be exalted and glorified. So Jesus, I pray that the truth of your love for us would move us to love you. That we would delight in you, Jesus. That we would see you as so beautiful, so precious, so good, so kind. That it would just more and more, Lord, truly become our heart's desire to know Jesus. To behold his power and his glory. And to live for him. To die to self. To receive the beautiful, the weight of the seriousness, the beautiful seriousness of Jesus in the gospel that gives life. So Lord, lead us in that. This morning, Lord, you know our hearts. There might be some here who need to today turn from a besetting sin uh, that they're holding on to or a grudge that they refuse to let go. Lord, you, you know where we live. Maybe there's some today who acknowledge Jesus, they go to church, but truth is they, they worship and serve other things. And Jesus really does not matter. Lord, bring that person to faith, true faith. And we'll give you all the praise, all the glory. Jesus Christ, you died for sinners. You are such a precious Savior. Amen.